Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Peter Schiff Show. Before I get into what happened with today's non-farm payroll number and the 370-odd point rally in the Dow that it helped spark, I want to go back and talk about what happened on Wednesday and Thursday, uh, which were the two days following my Tuesday podcast, which was from the first day of the fourth quarter of the year. And on Wednesday, the market sold off sharply. In fact, at one point, we were down better than 600 points on the day. We managed to close down just under 500. I think it was 494 points. But at that point, the first two days of the fourth quarter of 2019 was the weakest first two days of any quarter, not just the fourth quarter, but of any quarter going all the way back to 2008, which was the year the market imploded because of the 08 financial crisis. Now, one of the data points that came out on Wednesday that may have been uh, a contributing factor, but probably not, was the ADP employment number, which is, you know, an early look at the official numbers that came out today. This is just the private sector. Uh, which is certainly weaker uh, than the government sector. And I'm going to get into that when I discuss today's numbers later in the podcast. But the estimate was for 152,000 jobs created uh, in the private sector, and we only got 135,000. But not only that, there was a downward revision to the prior month from 195 down to 157. So this was additional evidence of economic weakness that was weighing on the market. But also, again, we had the follow over from what I had pointed out on my podcast, not only on Tuesday, but on Friday, the the prior week, regarding the weakness in the uh, newly uh, publicly traded companies, the money losing companies, the fact that some of these companies had to cancel their IPOs 
due to insufficient investor demand. And all of that was weighing on the market and helped produce that sharp decline. And when we got into the market on Thursday, the market had opened initially a little bit higher. But then as soon as we got the ISM non-manufacturing number, remember, We had gotten a very weak manufacturing number, and that was part of the reason we had the big decline earlier in the week. But now we got the ISM non-manufacturing number, and this number was forecast to come in at 55.5, which would have been a reduction in the 56.4 that we had for August. But instead of going down a little bit, the number went down a lot, all the way down to 52.6. Now, that's the weakest this number has been since 2016, which means it's the weakest number thus far of the Trump presidency. And so as soon as that number came out, the market tanked. The Dow was down over 300 points almost right away, meaning that that three-day decline, the first three days of the quarter, the Dow had already shed 1,000 points. But then all of a sudden, the market rallied uh, and recovered all of those losses. And the news that got the market going was the fact that the probability of a October rate cut, that means this month, the probability shot all the way up to 90%. So it basically saved the market was the increased probability that the Fed was going to come to the rescue of the market by cutting rates, because I guess before that number came out, there were more doubts. Maybe people were thinking, oh, maybe the Fed is not going to cut. Well, those doubts uh, were uh, put to rest once we got this much weaker than expected ISM service sector number. Remember, the manufacturing economy is already in recession. I mean, that is clear. Everybody will admit that. In fact, you know, we lost more manufacturing jobs on the official jobs number. Again, I'm going to talk about that later. Uh, But all the evidence is clear that manufacturing is, in fact, in a recession right now. In fact, retailing is also in a recession. They're still continuing to see bankruptcies in the retail sector, layoffs over there. But the service sector is the only part of the economy that is not in recession. And so uh, the evidence that now even the service sector is starting to buckle made people worried, but also made people relieved because now the prospects of a Fed rescue uh, are more likely. And so I think we got some short covering. Some people came in and they bought that dip. But as I've been saying, I don't think the Fed's got enough up its sleeves to actually make a difference. I think that there already is enough expectations for rate cuts that um, the probability going up is not enough to really put in a floor on the market. Remember, When we got off to a terrible fourth quarter in 2018, the Fed was able to reverse the decline because of a substantial reverse in policy. Remember, at the beginning of that quarter, the Fed was still saying it was going to keep raising rates. It was still going to keep on doing quantitative tightening. And when the markets responded to those threats by collapsing, the Fed was able to do a complete policy 180 going from rate hikes to rate cuts and, in fact, going from quantitative tightening to effectively having quantitative easing. But now that all that is already in play, if the markets start to tank again, 
I don't think there really is enough ammunition left in, you know, in the Fed's uh, chamber there uh, to have a meaningful impact on the markets. And I think traders are overestimating the ability of the Fed to rescue the market the way it has rescued it in the past. And in fact, speaking about quantitative easing, on Friday, or rather on Thursday, after the market closed, we got the statistics on the Fed's balance sheet. Now, if you remember, on my podcast on Tuesday, I had speculated that the Fed's balance sheet would take a pretty big jump during this week. Well, I actually... Uh, underestimated it. The increase in the Fed's balance sheet was actually larger than I had thought. The balance sheet was up $88.1 billion in one week. $88.1 billion. The size of the Fed's balance sheet is now back to $3.946 billion. At the rate we're going, within another week or two, we will be back over $4 trillion in the balance sheet on the way to a new high. Remember, the highest it got before was $4.5 trillion. We managed to get below 3.8. That was the bottom. That was as, as small as the balance sheet got. And now it is starting to grow. But here is the real point. If you go back and look at the last three weeks of quantitative easing, which is not real, they're not calling it quantitative easing, but whatever it is, they've been doing it for three weeks. And during these three weeks, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve has increased by $176 billion in just three weeks. Now, if you remember, the monthly number for QE3 was $85 billion. So under QE3, the Fed was buying $85 billion worth of debt instruments every month. And that was an official quantitative easing program. Today, there is no quantitative easing program. The Fed says they're not doing any quantitative easing, yet the balance sheet is now growing twice as fast, more than twice as fast when they're not doing quantitative easing than when they were. So obviously, that's exactly what they're doing. Now, the nature of the uh, the quantitative easing is a little bit different, right? It's going on in the, in the repo market, and it's probably a lot of short-term uh, uh, government debt and other debt that the Federal Reserve is monetizing. But it's still the same principle. The Federal Reserve is creating money out of thin air and then using the money that it creates out of thin air to buy up debt instruments for the sole purpose of preventing interest rates from rising. That's why the Fed is doing this. If the Fed was absent from these repo markets, if they were simply letting interest rates find a natural level, uh, then they wouldn't have to be doing it. And interest rates would be much higher. And of course, if you look at the money supply growth for the week, money supply M2 was up by 70.2 billion dollars. That is a huge weekly increase in the money supply. And that new money is being created in order to monetize this debt to prevent rates from rising. But if the market wants rates to go up, it's not up to the Fed to stop that. The Fed is trying to manipulate the market to create an interest rate that is not a free market rate. It's not the rate that the market is trying to discover. It is the rate that the 
politicians, the bureaucrats at the Federal Reserve, substituting their own judgment. They're saying, this is the interest rate we want. We're not happy with the interest rate that the market's going to set. And again, I've went over this many, many times. This is no different than a Politburo in the Soviet Union deciding what the price of bread is going to be. And as a result of that, people waited on long lines for hours at a time to get some you know, stale bread. You know, you need the market to send the appropriate signals uh, to get the right amount of supply and demand and to clear the market. The same thing is true with interest rates. The Fed is interfering and not letting rates go up. But probably the reason that the Fed is in there is because of the enormity of the amount of borrowing that is being done right now by the U.S. government, because the budget deficits are skyrocketing. They're at all-time record highs. But also, one of the things that Donald Trump has been doing since he's been elected president, and again, this is the opposite of what he claimed he would do when he was a candidate for president, is he has been shortening the maturity on the national debt. That means more and more debt, more and more short-term debt matures every single month and needs to be rolled over. I think it's something like a trillion dollars a month, right? Even though the national debt is like $23 trillion, so much of that debt uh, matures within the next year, right? Every month, there's a big chunk of debt that needs to be rolled over. Plus, there's the deficit from that month, right? Each month, there's about a $200 billion of new debt that they have to sell, but then they have to roll over old debt. So maybe it's somewhere between 500 billion and 1 trillion. But every single month, they have to do that. I mean, can you imagine having a mortgage? Instead of having a 30-year mortgage, you had to refinance your mortgage every month. You had to go out and reborrow all the money. Uh, and you had to you know, count on finding a lender willing to refinance it. I mean, that's kind of what's happening, although it's not the entire, the entire national debt that they're having to refinance. But the national debt is so big, there's an enormous amount of money that needs to be borrowed. And of course, it's not just the U.S. government that's borrowing money. There's all sorts of credit demand in this economy because everybody is in debt, corporations, state governments, municipalities, individuals, right? all the student loans, all the credit card debt, all the uh, auto loans. So there's all this demand and there's just not enough supply there. Uh, and so rates need to go up to clear the market. But the last thing the Fed wants is to allow interest rates to go up. So the Fed is suppressing them by basically doing unofficial quantitative easing. And this unofficial quantitative easing is already much larger than when we were officially doing it. Now, the question is, is the Fed going to keep this up or is it going to stop? Is this just a few weeks that are an aberration? I don't think so. I think the Fed is going to have to continuously do this. It's not going to call it quantitative easing. But again, all quantitative easing was was debt monetization. That's what they were doing back then. And that's what they're doing now. They just don't want to tell the truth. Initially, they didn't want to fess up to debt monetization. So they came up with a word that had, you know, didn't have a negative connotation, quantitative easing. But now the quantitative easing has a negative connotation. They don't want to call it that anymore. And the reason it has a negative connotation is because we did it when the economy was a mess, when we had an emergency, when there was a financial crisis, then there was a great recession. And the Fed said it's only temporary. Well, if they go back to QE now, if they officially go back to QE, well, then the Fed was wrong. It wasn't temporary. And the only reason that they claimed it worked was because they were able to end it. They were going to reverse uh, course. They were going to unwind the balance sheet, normalize interest rates. If they have to admit that they're right back at QE, then that's an admission that it didn't work because it only works if you can stop it. 
If it's permanent, then it didn't work. So they don't want to call it QE, but they also don't want to scare people into kind of equate, wait a minute, we're doing QE, but everybody's saying the economy is great. But then why are we doing QE? Maybe that means the economy isn't great. So they don't want to admit it. In fact, a pal was talking today about what a great place the economy is in. I mean, he likes to say that. That's like his favorite expression to describe the economy. It's in a great place. You know, I mean, it's in a lousy place. I mean, it's, I mean, where, how, where is he getting great place? This, they, it couldn't be in a worse place. But if they want to keep pretending that the economy is great, they can't also say that we're coming to the rescue with quantitative easing. So they're doing it. They're just not admitting that that's what it is. Now, at some point, they're going to admit it, right? When, when it's clear that the entire economy has followed the manufacturing sector into recession, then the Fed will finally admit to quantitative easing because the market will demand it. The market is going to want the Fed to do more. Right? So they're going to basically have to make the unofficial quantitative easing program official in an attempt to try to generate uh, some buying in the market and trying you know, to lift the optimism that the Fed is going to be able to repeat the same trick that it did the last time. And personally, too, I would have thought there would have been a bigger reaction in the markets to the the news of the huge increase in the Fed's balance sheet. Although I guess maybe it was expected, just the way I expected the balance sheet to to jump up. You know, I'm sure other analysts had expected that, but it's a much more significant development than is generally being discussed. Because again, it really proves that the Fed's policy was a failure, which is why they're repeating it. And it validates one of the forecasts I have been making from the beginning, from even before they tried to reverse quantitative easing and do quantitative tightening. I said from the beginning that the Fed was never going to be able to uh, shrink its balance sheet by any significant way, that they would have to abort the process prematurely, and that they would go back to quantitative easing. And that's exactly what they've done. Whether they call it quantitative easing or not, that's what they're doing. They are printing money and buying bonds and other kinds of debt instruments in order to prevent the market from raising interest rates. But there's only so they can only do that for so long, right? They can only hold back the tide for so long until it overwhelms them. And that's where we're headed. But anyway, there was no big reaction in the markets uh, on Thursday night in the overnight markets. And, you know, we opened up a little lower on Friday, but not substantially lower in anticipation of the official government non-farm payroll report for September. And I think there was some concern, you know, rightfully so, that this number could have come out much weaker than it did. I think maybe the whisper number was that we would have gotten something south of 100,000. The official consensus going into the morning was 145,000 jobs to be created. And uh, we ended up creating 136,000, which was below estimates, although there was an upward revision. That's kind of the opposite of what we got from ADP. There was an upward revision to the prior month, which was initially at 130, and they moved that up to 168. So when you net it out, I mean, it was a little bit positive as far as the, the net numbers. And maybe that was one of the reasons that the market rallied, because it was a relief that we didn't get data that was much worse than it was expected because the last few releases that have come out have been significantly worse. In this case, it maybe was about a push and the market rallied. And probably what helped sustain the rally throughout the day was the fact that the probability 
of an October rate cut did not diminish throughout the day. It's still pretty much locked in the bag, 90% probability, which means the Fed is going to do it because the Fed is not going to disappoint the markets. It may want to pretend that it's kind of, it's a question and maybe they're not going to cut, but of course, at the end of the day, they're going to cut. Now, the brightest spot in the jobs report, at least the way Donald Trump is spinning it on Twitter, and the news uh, is pretty much backing him up with this uh, fake report is the fall in the official unemployment rate, which dropped all the way down to 3.5%. That was better than what had been expected. In fact, that is the lowest official unemployment rate going back 50 years. You have to go back to 1969, uh, the year that Neil Armstrong uh, walked on the moon. That was the last time we had a 3.5% unemployment rate, except as Donald Trump well knows, because he pointed this out Many times on the campaign trail, the numbers are fake. They're phony. They're a fraud. They're a con job because that is not the actual unemployment rate. We are comparing apples to oranges. or In fact, not even apples to oranges. We're comparing apples to elephants when we compare today's 3.5% to a 3.5% rate that existed in 1969. And that's because we calculated the unemployment rate very differently in 1969. You know, we have another measure of unemployment that doesn't get a lot of headlines, but it's called U6. And what the U6 rate does is it includes people who are working part-time but who really want to be working full-time and people who are discouraged and so they're unemployed but they're not looking for work. Now, that rate is 6.9%. Now, 50 years ago, the U6 rate was the rate. We didn't differentiate between the two groups. So when we're going back 50 years, we're comparing our headline number to the U6 number back then. So if you take a look at just 6.9% as an unemployment rate, there's nothing great about 6.9%. That's still a high unemployment rate. But you know what? It's actually even higher because back 50 years ago, when they were calculating the official unemployment rate, not only did they include the people who are working part-time, but who are looking for full-time work, and not only did they include the discouraged workers, but they included all discouraged workers, no matter how long they have been discouraged. See, the U6 rate only counts people who have been discouraged for less than a year. So if you're unemployed, but you've been discouraged for more than a year, well, you're no longer part of that 6.9 number. So if we really wanted to compare the unemployment rate today to what we had in 1969, not only would we have to use the U6 number, but then we would have to add into the U6 number all of the discouraged workers who have been discouraged for more than a year. And if we did that, the actual unemployment rate would be well north of 10%. I'm not really sure where it would be, but when Donald Trump was running for office, he claimed it was 20%, 30%, 40%. So even if he's reduced it, because the official unemployment rate was, I don't know, maybe it was around 5% 
uh, when Trump was elected. And so now if it's three and a half percent, well, if it was 40 percent before, then what is it now? 38 percent or something like that? I mean, it's barely moved down in real terms. Yet, of course, Donald Trump has taken the opportunity to take all that fake, phony, fraudulent data and now trumpet it as if it's genuine, right? Because now he's the president, and he even admitted that. I remember at a press conference early in his presidency, he even admitted the numbers were fake before, but they're real now. But if you look at the rest of the numbers for the report, it actually is another weak report that nobody really wants to acknowledge as being weak. Take a look at the private payrolls, which are much more important uh, than government payrolls. So private payrolls were supposed to grow by 135,000, and they grew by just 114,000. There was an upward revision to the prior month, but still it's only 122,000 private sector uh, jobs created. And in fact, the manufacturing sector, which last month it was initially reported that they created 3,000 jobs. That was reduced to just 2,000 jobs, and they were looking for 3,000 for September, and we lost 2,000. So 2,000 manufacturing workers lost their jobs, according to this report. Uh, so what we're doing here is we are losing productive manufacturing jobs, and we're adding government jobs. I mean, government was doing uh, quite a bit of hiring. In fact, a good chunk of the revisions to the prior month, you know, many of those were even government jobs. But the problem with government jobs is that many of them are not only not productive, they undermine the productivity of private sector workers because they're there to enforce regulations that simply slow down and make private sector workers even less efficient. But of course, also, when the private sector hires people, their private employers are on the hook for the salary. But when the government hires people, it's we, the taxpayer, that have get stuck with the bill. And of course, when a private um, company decides to hire somebody, it's because they've made a decision that that hire is going to make the company more profitable, right? It's going to add value to the customer, which is what adds profits to the business. So it is a, a, a viable use of that labor resource. Right when the private sector hires somebody, but when the government hires workers, there is no way to know whether or not that worker is adding to any type of productivity that might otherwise be emanating from the government sector. In fact, if anything, as I said a minute ago, it's simply going to work to diminish the productivity of private sector workers because what they're going to do is harass those private sector workers. They're going to create rules and regulations that private companies need to um, follow that's going to make them less efficient and less productive. In fact, sometimes some of the private sector hires are people that are hired only to enforce or comply with government regulations. That's particularly true in the securities industry, in banking and financial services. We have these big compliance departments, and so those people are working simply to try to survive uh, the onslaught of regulation that is coming in uh, from the government. And so, you know, it's it's a waste on, on both parts. We're, we're wasting labor in the government imposing the regulations, and then we're wasting more labor in the private sector trying to comply with those regulations. Now, I know not all regulations are bad, but the vast majority are, and far more harm is being done uh, than good by regulations. The best regulation is a free market, not the government. But the, the, the point that I'm really trying to make here is the fact that we are replacing 
productive private sector jobs with non-productive bureaucrats, this is nothing to be excited about. This is not evidence of a good economy. This is a weak economy. The government is trying to bail out the weakness in the economy by hiring people. Where are they getting the money to do that? They're borrowing it, right? That's part of the deficits, right? They're hiring more people, so the government payrolls are up. They need more money. Where do they get it? They borrow it, and how are they borrowing it from the Fed, right? The Fed is coming in and creating money out of thin air and using it to buy the bonds so the government can pay the workers. But, of course, we're all on the hook uh, for this one way or another. Either we pay higher taxes tomorrow, we pay higher interest rates, or we suffer higher inflation, which means the cost of everything that we want to buy goes up, and that's how we are paying for these government workers. Now, also, look at the hourly earnings. This is a number that you know Trump has been trumpeting the fact that, oh, wages are really growing now that I'm president. Well, they were expecting a gain of 0.3% because, you know, we were up 0.4 the prior month. They were looking for another big number, up 0.3. Instead, we were flat, zero, no increase at all. And so that means if you average out the last two months, you're at 0.2, which is nothing to get excited about. In fact, year over year, the average increase in earnings is down to 2.9% from 3.2%. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the actual level of inflation is in excess of 3%. I mean, the way the government reports it, you know, it's, you know, it's two something, I forget what a two, four or something like that. But even if you believe the government's numbers, you're talking about barely increasing uh, the uh, hourly wage. But of course, the real cost of living that these workers are having to deal with, prices are rising much faster than that. I mean, they're obviously rising more than 3%. So clearly, Workers are losing, right? Real wages are actually falling, even if, you know, it looks like they're eking out uh, minimal gains. That's mainly because of the underreporting of the increase in prices. Like I mentioned, I forget, a couple of podcasts ago, or a couple of weeks ago, rather, that my health insurance was up uh, 30% just in one year. And that's just health insurance. But health insurance, of course, is a big part of what people are paying. That's a big part of your monthly expenditures. And, and so if that goes up 30%, and of course, you know, employers, maybe some of that their employee is covering, but there's a portion that they're covering. And so their portion is going up 30%. That's a big number. And when you average that in with other costs, I mean, you're talking about uh, a cost of living that's going up a lot more than 2.9%, which means workers are still continuing to fall behind, uh, which is why, you know, when the election comes in 2020 and you have a lot of these workers that believe Trump was going to make America great again, when it turns out that he didn't do that, that that, that, that was just another false promise. That was just a slogan. That was just for a bumper sticker that nothing actually happened. They're going to take a shot at socialism. In fact, if you look at the numbers, right, what we're getting now, both the manufacturing sector and these jobs numbers, the manufacturing sector, as I said, is in recession, and the job creation in the private sector is slowing, and it's increasing in the government sector. Now, is that the type of economy that Donald Trump promised uh, voters that he was going to do? Was he really going to make America great again by making government great again? Was that his strategy? I mean, would Republicans have signed on to that strategy? Now, he still enjoys, Trump enjoys widespread support among Republicans, but they're not really looking at what he's doing. They want to talk about how we have this great economy under Trump 
Well, if they think the economy is great, it's because of Keynesian uh, deficit spending. It's because government is getting bigger and bigger. Now, I don't know when Republicans all of a sudden began believing in big government as the secret to prosperity, but that's what we've got, right? We've got manufacturing in recession, right? We've got manufacturing the weakest it's been since 2009, and What's powering the economy is the growth of government. Government is getting bigger. It's spending more. It's hiring more, right? So we're going more to a central economy, a government economy, as the real private economy is getting smaller and smaller. Everybody is drowning in debt, right? We're borrowing all this money. Trade deficits at record highs. Budget deficits at record highs. I mean, that's part of the problem when your manufacturing sector is the weakest it's been since 2009, if we're not manufacturing, but we're still consuming, we end up importing more manufactured goods because we're not producing enough ourselves. And of course, we're not producing enough to export either. But so we have the private sector contracting, the public sector expanding, uh, more debt. Uh, individuals are going into debt, right? That's what's keeping the consumer. I keep hearing all these, uh, you know, reading articles or hearing uh, people on television talking about. The, the, the consumer, you know, he's going to save the economy. He's powering the economy. I mean, thank God for the consumer, even though manufacturing's in recession. You know, we got this strong consumer. The consumer is not strong. The consumer is extremely weak. Just because the consumer is spending, it doesn't mean the consumer is strong. You got to look at where is he getting the money, right? He's not getting the money because he's earning a lot of money. The consumer is getting money because they're borrowing a lot of money. They're going deeper and deeper into debt. That's the source of the consumer's strength is his ability and his willingness to go deeper into debt. Well, that obviously can't go on forever. There's a limit, not only to their willingness, but the ability, because there has to be lenders. And again, that is why the government is now having to do this stealth, unofficial quantitative easing. So this borrowing and spending binge can continue because the lenders are not there. There isn't enough credit available in the sec private sector to sustain this constant increase in debt. But in order to keep this phony bubble economy going, we need a constant increase in debt. And so if the private sector can't supply it, the government is doing it. And that is the problem because eventually all this money that they're creating, the dollar has got to tank. Now, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, the dollar index is still around 99 and it, you know, it was down a little bit over the last couple of days. But it's still very strong. 98.84, I think, is where we close the week. And gold prices, you know, were pretty much flat today. They were up a little bit yesterday, but we did manage to get back above 1500. We closed the week at 1504. But gold should be a lot higher. You know, the dollar should already be a lot lower. But so far, that hasn't happened. I mean, so far, people are still in denial. People don't want to accept reality of what's going on. And they're still focused on what's happening overseas. They're looking at monetary policy in the Eurozone. They're looking at monetary policy in China and Japan. And so they're not paying attention to the really a much greater problem that's happening much closer to home. You know, a good example, too, of how all of this short-sightedness can, you know, really blow up in your face about a, a banking mortgage crisis happening in Poland. And it involves mortgages that Poles had been taking out that were denominated in Swiss francs. Now, you might think, why would a Polish homeowner take out a mortgage in Swiss francs, right? Because he doesn't get paid Swiss francs. His uh, salary is coming in Zlotys. 
and uh, you know all of his expenses. I mean, like somebody in America, right? Would you would you take out a mortgage in a foreign currency? Because you have no idea what the exchange rate is going to be. This, the exchange rate can fluctuate. So there's a lot of risk there. But what was happening is the yields in Swiss francs are extremely low, right? I mean, their short-term rates are negative. So if you want to take out a mortgage and you're borrowing in Swiss francs, you're going to have an extremely low interest rate on that loan, much lower than the interest rate would be on the mortgage if it was denominated in Zlotys. So what the Polish homeowners were doing was they were trading the long-term currency risk, right, that is inherent in making a bet like that for the short-term benefit of having a lower monthly payment. Because let's say the the mortgage, let's say you got a 10-year mortgage in Swiss francs and the interest rate on the mortgage is 1%. But if in Zlotys, the interest rate was 6%, well, your savings 5% per year. So assuming the Swiss franc does not gain any value against the Zloty uh, over the course of that time, you save a lot of money by borrowing in Swiss francs. But the trade-off is if you borrow in your local currency, then you know exactly what your mortgage payment is going to be if it's a fixed rate. And you can equate that to your salary because your salary is in local currency. It's not their poles aren't getting paid Swiss francs. Right. Uh, So but they you know, they just wanted to do what was a short term a positive. Right. They, They didn't care about the long term consequences. Everybody was doing this. Hey, this is great. You can get a lower mortgage in the here and now. Forget about the risk because that's for the future. Right. Well, Obviously, you know, anything that can go wrong will go wrong, especially if you're betting against the Swiss franc when your base currency is the Zloty. So the Swiss franc has gone up. And in fact, the Swiss franc would have gone up a lot more, but for intervention uh, of the Swiss government and and those and keeping those rates down there. But the Swiss franc has gone up a lot. And now there's a crisis because now a lot of the borrowers who took out mortgages, their payments have gone up so much in local currency that a lot of people who borrowed in Swiss francs can't afford to make their payments. And of course, it's not just the monthly payments, right, that the whole loan is due in Swiss francs. Uh, and so it's really getting bigger and bigger because it's not just their payments that are going up. It's the principal balance that is getting higher and higher in terms of local currency. So now, I mean, I think the government wants to ban mortgages in foreign currencies. You know, yeah, this is again, this is what happens. Politicians always want to close the barn doors after the horses have already left. But my point in bringing it up is this is the same thing that Americans do. Not not you know, necessarily by taking out a foreign currency mortgage, but, you know, just taking out an adjustable rate mortgage or an interest only mortgage or a mortgage, you know, that maybe you have a set rate for five years or something. A lot of Americans have traded the long term interest rate risk of rates going up for the benefit of a lower payment right now. And that's exactly what the United States government has done with the short-term financing of the national debt. They are foregoing locking in these low interest rates for 20, 30 years uh, because of the benefit of just rolling over the debt, you know, every 30 days, every 90 days, because for now that's cheaper. But just like the Poles, who all of a sudden, you know, saw their mortgage payments skyrocket when the Swiss franc went up, eventually interest rates are going to spike up. The Fed is not going to be able to control them, right? And and then we're going to have to pay the piper. Just like you know, whenever you do this, whenever you're trading long-term risk for some temporary short-term gain, yeah, it's great while the party lasts. 
but the party always ends. And in fact, ironically, I think the the polls got a little bit of a relief because the Swiss franc has actually dropped uh, over the last week. And the catalyst for the drop in the Swiss franc relative to the euro and other currencies was a lower than expected inflation in Switzerland. So, again, you know, this is the upside down, bizarro world that we live in where you report lower inflation and your currency goes down. That's bad news. Right. Makes no sense. Right. What used to make the Swiss franc so attractive was because they had low inflation. In fact, I remember when I was in this business in the 90s, I used to sell this mutual fund that doesn't exist anymore. They shut it down. But it was called the Hard Currency Fund. And it basically was like a money market fund that invested in money market instruments in hard currencies. And the definition of a hard currency, according to this mutual fund, was a country where the average rate of inflation uh, had been below 2% you know, at a minimum. So you had to have less than 2% annual inflation in order to qualify as a hard currency. And the lower the inflation, the better. Because obviously, when you are holding a currency, when you are choosing to store a currency, you're storing your purchasing power for the future. And so you want to hold the currency that will store the greatest percent of its purchasing power. Because after all, you're holding the currency to spend it in the future, right? Any money that you're saving today is money that you're going to spend tomorrow. And if you don't spend it, your children will or your grandchildren, whoever is going to inherit it. So you're deferring consumption into the future. You could spend it today and you could buy something, but you're going to save it so you can buy something in the future. So whenever you're saving, the most important thing is, well, how much will my money buy in the future? Right. And so the less inflation you have, the more it's going to buy. And so you're going to want to hold the currency. You're going to choose. Right. If you have a choice among different currencies, you're going to want to choose the currencies that are going to maintain their value the best. That means the lowest inflation. And so that was the idea behind the hard currency fund. Let's just find currencies that have the lowest inflation. And the Swiss franc, of course, was always in the hard currency fund because it had among the lowest inflations in the world. And that's why the Swiss franc had been one of the strongest currencies in the world, because their inflation rate was so much lower than all these other currencies. Now, all of a sudden, that's a bad thing. Oh, inflation is too low, right? Oh, the central bank has to print more money. They have to try to make prices go up because too low inflation is bad and higher inflation is good, which, again, it completely makes no sense because, by definition, more inflation means the currency is losing value. And a currency that's losing value is not more attractive than a currency that's not losing value. So this, again, this whole idea is not going to go on uh, indefinitely. In fact, when they look back on this in the history books, when economists and they have classes on economics, when they teach about this period, no one is even going to believe that this was possible. No one's going to believe that we could have been this dumb. Right. I mean, it, it's like, you know, if we go back and we look at, you know, uh, the witch doctors or talking about, you know, ancient medicine, like I talked about um, uh, bloodletting or, you know, even going back and how they were burning witches and all kinds of crazy things that people used to do because they believe this nonsense. Well, this is what it's going to look back and say, hey, people actually believed that you needed prices to go up. And if, if prices didn't go up enough, that the central bank had to come in and do something about that problem to make sure that the cost of living rose faster than what it was rising in the market. Right. They're going to look back at that and, and think, what are these guys nuts? How could they have been so stupid to actually believe something such, you know, this complete nonsense. 
Now, some other economic news, too, that came out this week. Again, the market seemed to ignore it. We got the car sales numbers or uh, auto sales weaker than expected. I mean, we're seeing, uh, you know, um, demand there continuing to fall, even as, you know, we have these record amounts of auto debt, which, of course, is weighing on that sector and is going to weigh heavily and more and more heavy on that sector as time goes by. Also, we got news of tariffs now being put on uh, on Europe. Uh, I think it's only 15 billion or something like that so far, but we've just you know, really opened up another front on the trade war. The airlines are particularly upset about it because they're, we're imposing these tariffs on Airbus. And so to the extent that an American airline company needs to buy a new Airbus plane, it's going to cost more money to buy the plane. So that's bad news for U.S. airlines. But that also means bad news for U.S air travelers, right? Because they're going to buy a ticket on these planes. And if it costs more uh, to produce them, well, then the tickets are going to be more expensive as well. You know, another story too, that I I put up on my Facebook page, I didn't even see this story uh, when it first came out, but it certainly fits in to uh, what I've been talking about, these money losing companies. I talked about this company a couple of years ago because it had a crazy idea and they finally went bankrupt. And that's the company called MoviePass. Right. If you don't remember this company, they basically gave you a subscription where you could see an unlimited number of movies every month. And I don't remember what it was. It was maybe like 10 bucks. Right. And you could see as many movies as you want uh, for a month for ten dollars. Now, I mean, if you go to the movies now, I mean, I don't even know where an adult can go to a movie for less than ten dollars. So as long as you went to one movie. Uh, then, you know, obviously it was a good deal, but you could go to 10 movies. You could go to a movie every day. I mean, I can imagine people who are retired, they don't have much to do, uh, kids, you know, just really utilizing the movie pass. And of course, you know, this was a great deal. It's just like in the example that I gave on my last podcast, if you're going to sell $10 bills for $8, you're going to sell a lot of $10 bills. Well, that's basically what they were doing, except they were maybe selling $50 bills, right, for $8 or $10, whatever it was. And so they were signing up a lot of people, but their business model was that they were reimbursing the theater for the actual cost of the ticket. So even though you were just paying them 10 bucks a month, and I forget, maybe it was more, maybe it was 15 or 20, I, I can't recall, but whatever it was, it was really, really low. And because it was so low, Lots of people were signing up and lots of people were going to movies because it really wasn't costing them very much, but it was costing MoviePass because MoviePass had to reimburse the theaters for the full price of the ticket, even though they were getting a fraction of it. Now, what was their plan? I don't know. They had some cockamamie plan. Maybe they were going to get so many people signed up that they were going to monetize it some way. But, you know, somehow, you know, they never got to the promised land and now they're bankrupt. I mean, and that's exactly what I said was going to happen to this company when I first heard about it. But it was a great deal for consumers because the consumer was being subsidized by the idiot investor who was funding this uh, this company, in fact, another one of these companies just raised $275 million this week. This is a scooter startup, uh, Bird. You know, they they provide, like, they're like Uber of scooters. You know, you can rent, you know, like they do these with bikes in cities too. You, you rent a scooter for the day. And again, these guys are losing a bunch of money. They're not making any money. And now they just raised another $275 million so that people can rent these scooters for less than it actually costs the company to make these scooters available. I mean, I, I mean the, all of these plans, I mean, Businesses need to make money, right? You can't have these kind of losses. You know, I mean, if your business model is going to work, 
right? It should work on a smaller scale. I mean, basically what you really should do, what businesses should be doing before they really go into the public market or even these VC markets is you need to prove that your business works on a small scale. And historically, that's what companies did, right? You would, you would have a private business and there would be some money invested privately, you know, and you, businesses could lose money for the first couple of years. I mean, that's okay. You know, you're, you have some upfront costs, some startup costs uh, that you need to overcome, but then you would prove out the model, right? You prove that your business works, that you can generate a profit. And then you go to the market and say, hey, I've got this great idea that's generating this huge profit right now, but we just need to scale it up because I'm doing it on a small scale right now. But if I just had more money, I can expand and I can do on a large scale what I'm currently doing on a small scale. And in fact, because of the economies of scale, when I scale up this profitable business, it's going to be even more profitable. And it's based on that that you go in and tap the markets for money. But what's been happening recently is companies are losing a bunch of money. And then before they've ever proved the concept out, before they've even shown it can work on a small scale, they want to raise more money to scale it up. Well, if you've got a money-losing company, why would you want to scale it? If you're losing money when you're small, you can lose even more money when you're big. But that's what's been going on. And again, that's what's coming to an end. That is the, uh, the, uh, the, the big news that I think is going to weigh on the markets. It's part of the reason why we had that big decline Monday, Tuesday, and early Wednesday. And even though we've had the snapback rally, it's part of the reason that we're going to have another decline uh, coming soon. Also, too, during the week, I was reading a story up on Zero Hedge uh, about uh, – in September, the Class 8 heavy truck orders have collapsed by 71%. This is the 11th consecutive month of year-over-year declines in truck orders. Why would people need trucks? Well, they need to transport stuff around, right? Well, if they don't need to transport as much stuff around, obviously there's less economic activity. This is another sign uh, of, of, a, of a recession that everybody is overlooking, including the Federal Reserve. Anyway, that's it for today. You know, I'm still here in Las Vegas. I want to remind everybody, I'm going to be in the Dallas Money Show coming up October 12th and the 13th. So if you're in the Dallas area or if you feel like traveling to Dallas, this is a free event at the Dallas Money Show. But then I am going to be headed to New Orleans November 1st through the 4th, I believe, in New Orleans uh, for that conference. And so if you haven't already signed up, this is something where you have to uh, pay in advance and register. There is a cost, but it's highly worth it. And I'm going to be there uh, for the entire conference. My wife's coming with me, so i uh, be happy to see as many people. We'll have a booth there. We'll have a couple of their Europac reps will be there. I'm not having a booth in, uh, in, in Dallas. It's just going to be me, but I will be doing a workshop. So I'm looking forward uh, to seeing some people there. The conference I'm at now has to do with uh, uh, short-term traders or day traders, but uh, they're going to get a nice dose of Peter Schiff. I don't speak until tomorrow. I speak Saturday morning over here in uh, in Las Vegas. But I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be telling it like it is once again, and we'll see what kind of reaction because it's much more of a mainstream audience here. 
you know, CNBC uh, viewer type guy. And obviously, if you're just watching CNBC, you're not hearing any of my point of view because my point of view isn't really allowed on that network anymore. So the only way that you can hear my point of view is if you listen to my podcast. And I'm glad, you know, the podcast I did on Wednesday, we got a lot more listeners uh, than we normally get. If you check out the views on YouTube, you can see that there's, uh, you know, a much a big jump. Uh, So I'm glad that people are starting to pay more attention to what I have to say. A lot more of the stuff that I have been saying has been coming true. And a lot of people, again, that just watch the CNBCs, they're surprised by a lot of this stuff that's happening. Well, the people that are listening to my podcast are not surprised. Uh, They're anticipating this and they're able to prepare for that. So again, you know, try to uh, spread the word. Let's try to get as many people as we can listening to the Peter Schiff Show podcast, either directly at SchiffRadio.com or people can listen to it on my YouTube channel. Thank you.